listening to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. In the season of where our church is at, we are stepping into a season of maturity. Right? And I think... It's a season of maturity. There are a few things that uh, I feel I would like to share. Uh, given as my season as uh, becoming a father, Zion's turning one in 10 days. Uh, 10 days, she's going to be one year old. It's, it's been an amazing journey uh, being a parent, being a father. And there's, there are things that I've gleaned and I've learned as in this season of being a father. Uh, it's funny, Christine, uh, when she was talking about me speaking this week, she says, Jonathan Shepherd, Father Wong. It's quite funny because that is exactly what I was going to preach on. And I was just like, I did not tell you what I was going to preach on. Um, but I feel like this is the season as a ministry, as a church, uh, that we need to learn what it, mean to be, what it means to be fathers and shepherds of the house. Uh, and not just for this local church, but also for the nation. Right? We're looking at a season of, in our nation where there are many voices that is trying to influence the direction of where this nation is going. And we need fathers and shepherds, not just in this house, but in the nation, to make sure that values that is God-given, values that is scriptural, is adhered to, is kept to. And I really want to encourage us as a house, and it's not a, again, well, for the, 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 the gender equal, fathers also equate to mothers, and so just want to make sure that I'm also talking to spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers of the house. Um, but I just want us to, as a ministry, it's not something that is because of a status that you're in or an age that you have that would dictate whether you are a father or mother or shepherd of the house. Can I just put that across? Uh, it doesn't mean you have a child, therefore you're an automatic spiritual father, mother of the house. It is something that we learn and we grow to. It's something that I'm learning and I'm growing to. Andre, despite his age, um, is a father of the house. Can I put that across? He is a father and he displays uh, what it means to be a father of the house. So, so I don't think it's an age thing. I don't think it's a status thing. I don't think it is um, anything to do with um, where we're at in our life. But it, it's about a spiritual maturity that we step into. Cool? You guys doing okay? I'm just gonna say I'm gonna just gonna read a few scriptures to sort of set the context of where we're at, um, and to sort of put a framework of uh, today's message, and then we'll just go right into it. This one is found in Jeremiah chapter three, verse fifteen. Right, Jeremiah three fifteen. The Bible says this, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will guide you with knowledge and understanding. Now, this is a very interesting scripture in Jeremiah. Right, Because Jeremiah um, is talking to God and God says this, hey, you know what, tell the people to return, etc., etc. And then he puts in this scripture, it says in verse 15, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart will lead or guide you with knowledge and understanding. And to Jeremiah, perhaps he was thinking it of a context of the then and now. Right, he's talking about a group of people that were, he knew because God says we're going into exile. And he says, look, you know what, um, tell the people that, that I'll give you shepherds. But if you read a little bit further in Jeremiah, you realize that this is talking about an end time perspective. Because in verse 17, it says this, At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. How many of you know that Jerusalem is not yet the throne of the Lord? Right? Jesus has not yet sat on the throne in Jerusalem. So this is something about a perspective that is in the near future, right? It says, at that time, they'll call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all nations, all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. 
So this is something, a perspective that is not a present perspective. It is a perspective that is to come. That there will be shepherds who will be sent by God, who will follow the heart of God and will guide people with wisdom and understanding. Okay? Get Jeremiah so far? Okay, the next scripture I want to dive into is Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. It's not an uh, unfamiliar scripture. I think um, Pastor Daniel has preached from this scripture a couple of times. Um, this is in verse, chapter 9, verse 35 and 38. And the context is Jesus takes His disciples up to the hill and He looks around the city and He uh, says this to the people. He says, Jesus went through all the towns and synagogues healing, went up to the hill and when He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore to send out workers into his harvest field. Now this scripture, we tend to use two Greek words to supplement the scripture. And we might be familiar with it. What's one Greek word that we always use in this scripture? Ekbalo, right? To send out, right? And another word that we use in the context of this scripture is ekklesia, which means a community of those that were sent out. Right, And so it's very interesting because when Jesus preached this, He says, hey, you know what? And we use the word Ekbalo, we need to send out. And I believe this church is a missional church. I believe that we are making impact in this city. How many of you remember what our passion statement is? We exist to help people. All people. Sorry. To be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the work of Jesus. In our city, right? In our city, not for. In our city. We'll get there. We'll get there one day. No, but we as a city have a mandate to be a missional church, to think outwards, to think about the city. And there's a lot of focus on this idea of the Ekbalo and the Ecclesia. But how many of you know when Jesus was preaching or, or sharing this with the disciples, He looked and He gave an analogy of shepherd and sheep. He says the people are like sheep without a shepherd. And we must understand the heart behind what Jesus is saying. He's saying, the, yes, let's go and be ekbalot and to be an ecclesia, but he's saying, let's do it with the heart of a shepherd. Right? And I feel as a community, as a church, it's something that I would want us to carry, to have a heart of a shepherd and a father. And again, when I say shepherd and father, it's interchangeable. It's the same thing in this scripture, in the context of this sermon. Yes, fathers and shepherds are the same. But we need to have a heart of a shepherd. We need to have a heart of a father in that process of sending people out in a missional context. Okay, I'll give you one more scripture and we'll go right into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Now the context of Corinthians is Paul is writing to the church of Corinth and he says, guys, you know what? You guys are a great church. You're extremely talented, but you are slightly immature and you guys are bickering over some uh, theological differences and this division within the community. And then he was... And, in that context, he says, 1 Corinthians 4, 14, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ. Uh, in some versions, they say you have uh, teachers or instructors. In Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I, become, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Right? So there's a context of where Paul writes. And he says, look, you guys are a great church. You're extremely talented. You're extremely uh, gifted. But there's a problem. The problem is this. You have many instructors, but very few fathers. 
And I think it's something that is also very common, not just in uh, the church, but also in society where we like to tell people what to do, but we don't necessarily do it ourselves. Right? It's something that we don't embody. All right? It's easy for us to tell people what to do versus to embody that message that we try to carry. And what Paul is trying to say, hey, you know what? I embody the message, therefore imitate me because I'm a father. There are people who tell you what to do, but they don't necessarily embody that message. Right? And so, in that context, I'm going to give you six differences between fathers and instructors. Right? The differences between fathers and instructors. Right? Then we'll get into our message. This is just the intro. <laughs> Very good, right? How you guys are learning something so far? Thanks, Joanna. Uh, six differences between instructors and fathers. Difference number one. Instructors disseminate information, fathers pour out their lives. Right? Instructors disseminate information, fathers pour out their lives. See, the primary function of a teacher is to take the revelation of Scripture and make it practical, uh, practical applicable, practically applicable for everyday living. While teachers are primarily called to spend time studying and dispensing knowledge and information, fathers are primarily called out to pour their lives to those for whom they are responsible for. Okay? A father's primary method of teaching is through modeling excellence. By the way, Zion is beginning to copy Mel and I in group. Like she, the reason why she puts the mic into her mouth is because we always hold the mic this way. And so she always grabs the mic and, you know, when Mel prayer leads in the prayer room, she would always want to hold the mic and put it up this way. Why she models, she sees it as a normal thing to do. Right? And so recently, I had a fever over this week. And so I had, a, you know, one of those thermometers that you, you sort of measure with the ear. And so now every time she sees the thermometer, she'll hold it and then she'll put it in her ear. You know, and, and it's just instantaneous. It's, it's not something that I teach her what to do. She does it automatically. Right? Um, obviously, uh, for those who know, we love our shoes. And so what Zion would do is when she knows that we're about to leave the house, she'll grab my socks. And then if I'm seated down, she'll take the socks and she'll put it on my foot, knowing that the socks need to get there. Right? And so it's something that she sees. It's not something that I intentionally try to do to teach her, get those socks and put it on my foot. Right? I don't. It's something that she sees, she observes, and she models. Right? So a father's primary method of teaching is modeling. Excellence and wisdom in one's life for one's spiritual children. Fathers go by the mantra, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And this is the primary method Paul used to disciple and father his spiritual children. Therefore, in 1 Corinthians, we read, he tells, tells them, look, imitate me. It's also very interesting if you read verse 17 of the scripture, it says, therefore, I'm going to send my son, Timothy, to you, who has modeled every way that I have exemplified to him. Right? Just think about it. Right? That fathers don't just disseminate information. Fathers and mothers pour out their lives to their spiritual children. Which also means as fathers and mothers of the house, we need, to be, uh, we need to ensure that our conduct is integrous, right? We do as what we say. Cool? Difference number two. Instructors are motivated by illumination. Fathers are motivated by personal transformation, right? I, I've been involved in teaching. I've been a youth pastor and I teach a lot. And for me as a teacher, it, I'm constantly motivated with the fact that my students get it. Right? Oh my gosh, they got my revelation. They got what I was trying to say. Right? And so the more I want to teach, the more I want to learn about scriptures and leadership principles so I can pass on my learning through either my writings or my preaching. But however, to those that I believe are in a special circle, right, I, I'm more motivated by seeing the teachings bear fruit. 
for personal transformation. I'm called to walk with them, to correct them, encourage them, and aid them in their life journeys. It is not enough for me to teach those in this group. It is for me to be available to coach them in their personal life as well. And that is one difference between instructors and fathers. We need fathers in the house who are not just contented about teaching a good principle, but we need fathers and mothers in this house, regardless of age, regardless of position, who are willing to journey with one another in this community. I just want to give a side note about community. And one of the things that I'm responsible for in my job is to build community. And I was speaking to my CEO. He says, hey, John, um, is it possible if I talk to someone from a church? Because as a business, I want to learn from the church what it means to build community. Interesting. Right? There's something about the community that we learn from one another where there are fathers and mothers present who are willing to model their lives, who are willing to spend time, who are willing to dedicate and pour out their lives to uh, spiritual children regardless of age. And I think it's something beautiful that as a church we need to embody. Again, one of the reasons why I'm saying all this is because I feel that there are many of us who have grown up in this church who are in your middle to late 20s, to your, who are early 30s, who are like, oh, you know what, it's okay, let, let, us, let us leave. And I, I'm not saying this in a bad way. I think many of us have uh, been invested in the church and poured out your life to this church. But I'm saying this as a stepping up of a spiritual authority, authority in, this, in this house, right? As young adults or even older adults, or even younger teenagers, we can step up into this authority and mandate as a church to be a father and mother in this house. Right? Where we are not motivated just by making sure people get it, but we are motivated that people's lives are changed and transformed in this community. Cool? Difference number three. Instructors search for students, fathers search for sons and daughters. What do I mean by this? As a teacher, and I don't know how, how many of you are teachers, but as a teacher, we would always want to find students that are either motivated or too brilliant. So it makes our teaching a lot easier, right? Uh, how many of you know teaching a son and daughter is not as easy because that's it, I'm left with Zion. Whether she gets it or doesn't get it, too bad. I wake up the next morning, it's, she's still there. And she's not going to turn brilliant overnight, although I think she's quite brilliant. But <laughs> she's not going to, you, you know what I mean, Right? But father, teachers enjoy nothing more than being in a room full of hungry students that can uh, pull knowledge, information, and insight out of them. It's great, right? You get a, a good discourse and a good conversation going. But as fathers and mothers, we don't get to choose who we pick, right? But there's a long-term connection and devotion and dedication that's necessary when it comes to a commitment of a son and a daughter, where we are willing to invest our life as a son and daughter, regardless of their ability, right? And this is a community of all of us who are, are not as... I mean, some of us are quite bright, some of us are not so... Okay, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But we're a great community. Moving on. Yeah, yeah. Jason pulls the average down. No, just, uh, no he said take the... No, but I, I, I'm just saying... I. Shut up. Move on. <laughs> yeah. He searched for those who are humble and meek. Difference number four. In, instructors bask in joy at academic success. success. Fathers enjoy love, life success. Uh, teachers are thrilled when their students do well in school and become great students of the word. Fathers realize that just because someone is filled with knowledge and has a great grasp of biblical knowledge, there is no guarantee that person will have a successful personal life. So fathers are those that enjoy the life success of their spiritual children. Apostle John in Second uh, John chapter f uh, in verse four he says that there's no greater joy than to find my children walk walking in the light. 
right? And so as fathers, this is our joy that we see our spiritual children who are enjoying life success. Difference number five. Instructors have an intellectual connection with their students. Fathers have a heart connection with their children. Teachers are stimulated when they have deep intellectual exchanges with students and congregations while teaching and preaching or while doing a Q&A session. They walk away from such encounters extremely satisfied because of the opportunity to dispense their vast knowledge. Fathers are not satisfied with such exchanges unless it also involves a long-term strategy to be involved in the process of pouring their lives into their students. This is because fathers are motivated more by a heart-to-heart connection than an exchange of minds. Heart-to-heart connections delve into the heart, the mind, the soul, and the emotions of a person. They enable a father to penetrate beyond the surface and into the real life of a son or daughter. While a teacher may get excited when a student screams amen during a great lecture, a father desires to peer into the life of a son and daughter with the intent of bringing wholeness and integrity so that their teachings can bear much fruit and bring their children to maturity. Right? There's a difference between an instructor and a father because as a father, I desire heart-to-heart connections. You see, I'm not satisfied with just going and teaching some biblical spiritual truth in a life group or in a Sunday sermon, but we're here to do life in a community together and it requires fathers in the house to make sure that happens, right? To build heart-to-heart connections. Difference number six. Instructors desire opportunity to teach Fathers seek opportunity for their sons and daughters to minister. Teachers bask in the opportunity to teach even to the point where they would do it for nothing if they had to. They are always looking for a platform to get out their vast knowledge through preaching or teaching or blogging or writing books or all forms of available media like Instagram and Twitter. They gauge their level of success in life by how far and wide their teachings are being heard and received by the masses. On the other hand, fathers do not gauge their success by the extent of their ministry platform but by the extent of the platform they prepare for their spiritual seed. They take great pleasure being in the background while those that they have poured their life to are bearing much fruit in the foreground. Instead of living for their 15 minutes of fame, they live to wash the feet of their children and committing their life to their success. success. Finally, while many are attempting to preach and teach a message, not too many are willing to live that message out. And that is the difference between instructors and fathers. And Paul writes to the church of Corinth, hey, guys, 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 you know what? You guys have many instructors, many people who are willing to teach the word, but you need fathers in the house. I'll read that scripture again in 14 till 17. It says this, I'm writing this to shame. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in Christ Jesus. There's something about Timothy that Paul knows that this is a son that he has spent his life with, he has poured his life with for many years. And this is a son that he believes that the moment he is an exact replica. If you see Paul, you'd see Timothy. And Paul is almost saying to the church of Corinth, look, I have this son called Timothy who is an exact replica because he understands he carries the DNA that I have. And I'm sending this Timothy to you. 
The question is this, if today all of us are dispersed from this community and we go into our, uh, our place, our workplace, our schools on Monday to Sunday, do people look at us and say, hey, there's something distinct about you, you must be from a particular church, is it called the city? Because Andre, you speak like an Andre, you speak like a, you, and I, I'm not here to, to say that we, we dress like Andre or we speak exactly like Andre, but see, I'm learning the white shoes. But I don't know about you, but uh, in the day when I was growing up as a teenager, you, you can distinct a person who is uh, from a church like City Harvest or Heart of God straight away. I don't know whether you know what I'm trying to say. But the way they talk, the way they speak, the way they carry themselves is so identical, identical to the leaders of the, of the house. And I'm not saying that we're all here to imitate each other's dressing, although we now have a common bag and so all of us should carry that bag. But what I'm saying is, what is the DNA that you and I carry when we go back to our workplace, to our schools? What sort of message and values do we carry? Do we carry the values of this house? And Paul writes to the church of Corinth and says, Look, I have my son Timothy that carries my values, that knows exactly what I'll say, that knows exactly what I'll do, who will say the same thing that I will say, who has imitated me. And I'm sending him to you because he has imitated and captured the values that I have. And there's something about Paul and Timothy that I'm just going to sort of go deeper into. And I'm going to base it out of 2 Timothy. Chapter, uh, 2 Timothy. Right, this is his last letter. I just want us to imagine Paul is in his dungeon, in his cell. And this is in, he's in a bad shape. And he writes his final letter. I don't know whether he knows that this was the final letter that he will ever write to anybody. But for some coincidental reason, the last letter that he writes out from that jail cell is to his spiritual son, Timothy. It's really quite poetic, even in the first line, to my beloved son, Timothy. He writes this, Paul writes this in 2 Timothy, to my beloved. There's something about that letter that I want us to sort of glean from. And there's four things that Timothy learns from Paul, that Paul writes to Timothy. And just imagine this, if, if this is your last words to your spiritual son, what are you going to say? Right? And just take that value that Paul writes to Timothy that this is his last letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. And there are four things he encourages and exhorts Timothy to do as a father, as one that will take over the reins of being a leader of the church. He writes four things that I want us to remember. And what does it mean for us to be a spiritual father, mother, shepherd in this house? I want us to remember these four things. And not just for this house, but for the nation. What does it mean for us to be fathers and mothers and shepherds in this nation? And so one of the things he says to Paul, uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy is in chapter 1, verse 13 to 15. He says this, When you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit. In some versions, guard the gospel that it was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So the first point that I have today as fathers and mothers and shepherds of the house is that we need to guard the gospel. We need to guard truth. There's something about us as spiritual fathers and mothers to guard the truth. There's a quote that I read. I can pull it out. It's by this guy called Jared Falwell. If you don't know who he is, he was a very famous televangelist in the 60s. He says, As while I have no problem with the church adapting to the culture, we must ensure that we remain painstakingly true to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we remain obedient servants to His truth. There's something about what we need to do as fathers and mothers to guard the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it's something that we have to do with the differing voices that's happening in the society and in the world today. In the degradation of what is happening in society, it is paramount that we got gospel and truth. Not, in the not just in the house, but even in society. Right, there's another quote that I have, and this is by Leonard Ravenhill. I love this quote. He says, many pastors criticize me. I love Leonard Ravenhill. It's almost quite, uh, what's the word for it, nonchalant about his authority that he has. Right, he has this like, you know what, I'm Leonard Ravenhill, so everyone just keep quiet. Right, but he says this, many pastors criticize me for taking the gospel so seriously, but do they really think that on judgment day, Christ will chastise me saying, Leonard, you took me too seriously? Interesting thought. This is Leonard Ravenhill. If you listen to some of his sermons, Leonard Ravenhill says some of the most heart-wrenching, heart-cutting sermons that causes and creates conviction in our hearts. And he says this, what, people criticize me for being too serious. But hey, you know what, would Christ really chastise me saying, Leonard, you took me too seriously. Interesting. But there is something about what you and I need to do to preserve the truth of the gospel. Can I say this? I wanted to include this in my sermon, but I felt if I did it, it would be too long. But I'll just throw out this thought. The problem with the gospel today, or let me rephrase this, the problem that we are facing with the idea of the gospel is there are many definitions and versions of the gospel. Many. I encourage you to study Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul writes to the church of Romans and he describes the gospel to be the righteousness of Christ Jesus. I want you to study the idea of what it means to be the righteousness of Christ Jesus, that this is the gospel, right? Just want to throw it out there. I don't think we have time to go into what the gospel actually means, but there's something about keeping the gospel and its truth that is paramount, okay? Point number two, we need to persevere in it. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I'll just read it. He says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know that those from whom you learned it. It's interesting that we need to preserve the gospel. Continue, persevere in the gospel. Continue to learn. Continue to study. Can you go to the next slide, uh, Dory? Ravi Sakurai says this, beginning well is a momentary thing. Finishing well is a lifelong thing. There's something about persevering in the gospel that I want to encourage us as fathers and mothers of this house that we need to persevere in the scriptures. Persevere in the gospel. You guys doing okay? Point number three. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, it says this, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. We need to keep preaching the gospel. To keep on preaching the gospel. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage. There's a quote that I have learning from Andre to pull quotes from famous people. Charles Spurgeon says this, I remember one who spoke on the missionary question one day saying, the great question is not, will not the heathen be saved if we do not send them the gospel, but are we saved ourselves if we do not send them the gospel? Wow. Charles Spurgeon. I'll say that quote again. The great question is not, will not the heathen be saved if we do not send them the gospel, but are we saved ourselves if we do not send them the gospel? Charles Spurgeon. Wow. Something that I'm also learning from what it means to preach the gospel and to share the gospel. I was in Penang uh, about a month ago, and I so happened to be sitting in a taxi with 
with a, a taxi driver who's native of the land. Native of the land. Um, and we're, we're just talking, I just started asking him about his religion and asking him about his beliefs and asking him, have you heard about Jesus Christ? And then he said, oh, it's interesting because my sister married a Christian and my brother-in-law talks to me about you know, Christianity. And so we started talking about Christianity and I shared with him, what do you think the difference between Christianity and the other religion is? That's so difficult with Facebook Live. Hi. And he says this, the difference he feels is this person called Jesus Christ. I said, wow, he knows. And so I said, what do you mean? He says, oh, in what I study, Jesus Christ is a prophet, but I understand that Jesus Christ is a son of God. So he says, what do you think about it? And anyway, we had a good discourse about Christianity and his religion. And at the end of the day, I said the difference is love. That the fact that God is willing to send his son to die so that you can be redeemed, so that I can be redeemed. But in that conversation, I found it interesting because all it took was a 10-minute taxi drive. It was only 10 minutes. And I remember people in, the taxi, in my taxi were very shocked that in 10, 15 minutes, I could have a conversation about religion and almost sort of preach the gospel. I, I didn't really say the sin's prayer because we end up, ended up and I don't think he was ready. But for us to deposit the seed of the gospel, but is there a willingness for us to preach the gospel? And Paul tells Timothy, look, you know what? You need to preach the gospel. Keep on preaching the gospel. It's something that I would encourage us to do, to carry that DNA. It's not, not just good enough for us to understand and to carry it, but for us to preach the gospel. Point number four. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says this, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, His prisoner, but join me with in suffering for the gospel. Wow. Timothy writes that, uh, Paul writes that again in chapter 2, verse 3, and he says this, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. There's something about suffering for the gospel, and I'm, I'm not sure what suffering for the gospel looks like to you, right? And I, I don't think it's something that we can talk about and it makes a lot of sense for us, especially in a city like Singapore where there is religious freedom and where we're able to worship God wholeheartedly, um, without any restrictions. But think about this concept of suffering for the gospel. And what does it really look like? To us, it may look differently. I know people growing up with who are persecuted by their families because of their belief of Christ Jesus. Right? I, I, I know people who are not in this part of Singapore, who are in other parts of the world, who are suffering for the gospel. People who are in the Middle East, people who are in Eastern Europe who are suffering for the gospel. And we just recently uh, seen on Facebook, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but we see about the Chinese church in China being persecuted for the gospel. There's something about the gospel that would challenge society. The gospel is not a, it's good news, but it will challenge society. It will challenge society. And, I, and I'm speaking... Um, and I don't know how many years from now we're at, and I speak this with lots of trembling, but I believe there will be coming a day where we will be persecuted for the gospel, even in this city and this nation. And the question is whether we're prepared for it. And Paul writes, he says this, suffer for the gospel just as I have, sitting in the dungeon in jail. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32 is a very uh, famous scripture. We tend to, to use it quite often, especially those who come up from youth ministries. We used to say this, those who know that God will do great, exploits, right? In Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. It's very interesting because we say this scripture without understanding the context of Daniel chapter 11. 
Can I just paint the context of Daniel chapter 11 for you guys? And uh, Burning Hearts, we ran through a 21-day fast and we were studying the book of Daniel and so we were chewing 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 uh, like for 21 days. But there's a context of this scripture in Daniel chapter 11 that's interesting, right? If we read it in context, it's actually speaking about the last days when there will be a person called the Antichrist who will desolate the temple and who will use flattery to deceive and seduce people to turn away from Christ. Right? It's the context of this that Daniel writes, those who know their God will do great things, will do great exploits. It's in that context that he says, in the coming day, when there is someone that will desolate the temple, someone who will deceive many, Christians and non-Christians alike, someone who use flattery to seduce people, to seduce the church, that we need to stand on our ground, to stand firm, to know our God, because we will do great exploits. And that is the context of Daniel chapter 11. But if you read a little bit further into Daniel chapter 11, and I love this, right? So I'll read in verse 32. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burnt or, by, or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. This is very interesting. Uh, there's a scripture that Daniel continues to write. It says, hey, you know what? There will be a group of people that will resist, but they will die by the sword. They will be plundered. They will be burned or they will be captured. And those who are not sincere, meaning those who do not believe, will join them, will be intrigued by them in some versions of the Bible. NK, NKJV, the word they use is intrigued. There will be people who will be intrigued by these guys who committed and gave up their lives for the gospel, who stood firm. There's people who did not believe, who looks at it and are intrigued. Interesting. There's this story. The story of the 40 Roman soldiers. Um, I heard this a couple of months ago and I googled it. Seems true because they have a Wikipedia page. So it has to be true. There's a story of 40 Roman soldiers in 320 AD. Forty soldiers who had openly confessed, to, to them, confessed themselves as Christians were condemned by the prefect to be exposed naked under a frozen pond near Sebast on a bitterly cold night that they might freeze to death. Among the confessors, one yielded and leaving his companions sought the warm baths near the lake, which had been prepared for any who might prove inconstant. One of the guards Aglius was set to keep watch over the martyrs and beheld at this moment a supernatural brilliancy overshadowing them. He at once proclaimed himself a Christian, threw off his garments and joined the remaining 39. Thus the number of 40 remained complete. At daybreak, the stiffened bodies of the confessors, which still showed signs of life, were burnt and the ashes cast into a river. Christians, however, collected the precious remains and the relics were distributed throughout many cities. In this way, veneration of the 40 martyrs became widespread and numerous churches were erected in their honour. Story of 40 Roman soldiers who were thrown into a lake, left to die. One decided to leave. But this Roman soldier who was responsible for making sure that they didn't run away was compelled and convicted by their persecution, by their suffering, took off his own clothes and ran into the pond and said, I'm willing to die. There's something about suffering for the gospel that is intriguing to the church. And I put it this way. 
unless we are convicted by the message that we preach about, there's no way we can convince people around us. We try to convince people of a, a message, a good message. We sugar the gospel sometimes. And I do it a lot of times. This makes easier sense to It's easy. But unless we are convicted by this scripture, by this passage, by the Bible, the scriptures that we read, the truth of who God is, there's no way we can convince people. And there's coming a day, and I, I hope in the later future, for Zion's sake, that there will be persecution that will happen in this city, in this nation. Uh, but can we truly say that we are willing to suffer for the gospel? And Paul tells Timothy, hey, I'm going to depart soon. I've, I've finished the race. I've fought the good fight. I've, I've done it all. And I'm going to entrust you, Timothy, um, as me as a father, I'm entrusting you to you, my son, to be a father of your house, to be a father of your nation, to be the father of the churches. And he says this, look, you know what, Timothy, you need to do these things. You need to guard the gospel. You need to guard truth. You need to make sure that the truth will not be wavered in a society that is diminishing and depreciating. It's very interesting. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, in the last days, it will be evil because people will be lovers of themselves, people will be lovers of their money, people will be disobedient to their parents. You look at about disobedient to your parents, Zion is already fussing and sort of throwing mini tantrums at me and like, you are evil. Like, <laughs> it's interesting, right? Because the scripture says in the last days, godlessness will rise up. And when we read that scripture, we think, of course, every society, the society is like that. But Paul references it to the church, that in the church, people will be lovers of themselves, people will be lovers of money, people will be disobedient to their children. You go and read that scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in that scripture, he says, therefore, guard truth, guard the gospel, to persevere in it. Three, preach the gospel. Four, be prepared to suffer for the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And if I ask myself this, where is our church? Where are we at? Nine years in. We've grown as a church. Many of us are joined, us, joined the church recently like myself. Some of us have been here since day one. And if we can say that we are a mature church, we are a thriving and growing community, my encouragement is that we need fathers and mothers to rise up in this house. We need shepherds to rise up in this house to guard truth. It's interesting, in Jeremiah 3.15, when Jeremiah writes, he says this, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will guide you with wisdom and understanding. Daniel uses the word wisdom and understanding the same time, the same way that there will be people who will guide people with wisdom and understanding. It just means this. It just means that you and I, we need to be devoted and dedicated to the Scriptures to be spiritual fathers and mothers of the house. And I, I want us not to be contented with being a Sunday Christian coming. I love Sunday service. I love our community. It's great. This two hours is fantastic. We get to hang out. We get to learn great teachings and great Scriptures. We hang out on Friday nights with the life group. But can I encourage us that we need to devote and dedicate, dedicate our lives to having a relationship with the person called Jesus Christ. And because of that, through that, through pursuing Him wholeheartedly, that we can father and mother and shepherd in this house well. So I'm just going to invite the band to come up. And we're going to close. But even as we close tonight, uh, tonight, this morning, 
I want us to ask that question. Am I a father or a mother in the house? It's easy for us not to because it means responsibility. There's a responsibility that happens when we take on that mandate to be a father and a mother of the house. But that's why Paul says, you have many instructors but very little fathers. I want us to increase that average. I want us to have many fathers in this house, many mothers in this house. Regardless of where you're from, regardless of your age, regardless of your, your status, you don't need to be a physical father to be a spiritual father. You don't need to be married and have many kids to become a spiritual mother. We can do that by carrying the authority that we have that God has given us. So wherever you are, just begin to think and ask a question. He's searching for fathers and mothers of this house. Ones that will guard truth, persevere in the gospel, to preach it. He's searching for those who are willing to suffer for the gospel. Fathers and mothers, shepherds will rise up from this house. Who embody what the scripture says, to embody the person of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for this community to help all people to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, to do the work of Jesus? We need fathers and mothers to embody that message.